You're listening to The Conservative Conscience. In Washington, politicians are full of half-truths and hot air. The Conservative Conscience is here to help you cut through the rhetoric and noise and explore the politically right way to think about the issues. You'll dive into one of the most insightful conservative minds in America. Conservative Review Senior Editor Daniel Horowitz. Using pure common sense and ignoring the groupthink, Daniel breaks down the major issues in Washington. You are now entering the Conservative Conscience. And welcome back to the Conservative Conscience here at Conservative Review. And it is Tuesday, El Siete de Mayo. We are improving our Spanish skills here. A lot to talk about, although I am really, really behind on a lot of news today. Somehow my brain is just not working today from a lack of sleep. You would think with my youngest child, four and a half years old already, I'd be done with those days of being up four times in the middle of the night, but you know, he's going through a rough patch. So I really feel it the next day. It's funny, the older I get, the more I have such an intolerance to not getting a good night's sleep. <laughs> so I'm a little bit slow today. I want to really catch up on a lot of stuff going on in the courts. And I, and I want to take a lot of what we've said until now, last number of months and years, and really take it to the next level just to demonstrate how the entire concept of judicial supremacy has been disproven and has become incoherent even in the eyes of its own practitioners. And we all need to have a discussion about this, what to do headed forward, because they have no plan. Who is in charge of our nation? Well... We always thought it was the Constitution. Well, who determines that? All three branches together with their respective lawful powers. But the other side believes it's the Supreme Court. So how could it be both the Supreme Court, but then a lower court when it contradicts the Supreme Court at the same time? That's the question we're going to explore today. Just want to touch on a couple of things here. First of all, just real quick, dispense with a couple of loose news items not connected to today's main point. Um, really good news that Trump pardoned ex-Army lieutenant from uh, Oklahoma, what's his name, Michael Behenna, who was sentenced to 25 years in prison for killing an Al-Qaeda guy. One of the things I've been happy about Trump is, as much as I'm really not happy about his Kim Kardashian stuff, giving clemencies to these cartel people in federal prison, these punks. But at least, you know, he's consistent in the sense that he's doing it where people do deserve clemency. And and I think when you look at what the power of pardon is for constitutionally, if you understand the history behind it, it was really given for these sort of scenarios, not for street thugs that you just feel sentencing is too long and you want to make an end run around the legislature to try to decriminalize a certain class of people that you know you don't want to criminalize, which is what Obama started to do with his clemencies. But it's really for cases where you have a war hero. And let's just say even for a minute that the, the guy broke the rules and was too rough on a, on a terrorist, which y- you know my view on that. Um, but let's say you subscribe to that. This is certainly the appropriate time to give him clemency. Basically, um, you know, according to Behenna, there was this guy who killed two members of his platoon with a roadside bombing. 
he he ordered him into this, you know railroad cul- culvert in some area stripped him and then questioned him at gunpoint and he claims he shot him when he threw a chunk of concrete at him the you know judge in that in that trial believed that he was lying and he just shot him anyway without anything even if the worst is true i think it's a bunch of nonsense to sentence a guy like that to 25 years i don't think he should be sentenced to anything frankly i think he should be given a medal of honor how about that but nonetheless 25 years he's already served who knows how much i mean probably about 10 years if you count everything. So certainly very happy the president is doing that. And at least along with the jailbreak for drug traffickers, at least he's granting clemency to those who deserve it. So that is just a story I didn't want to forget. I wanted to give recognition of that because it's a problem. It really is a problem. We send our soldiers off into impossible situations and then prosecute them. I really look forward to the president doing the same thing for Eddie Gallagher if he winds up getting conv- convicted. And he's already, you know, stepped in to give him a less restrictive means of confinement. But we'll see what happens there. Next thing. So I look at the top two tweets, the most recent tweets from CBP in Arizona. And it just really struck me. Number one, U.S. Border Patrol agents spent the night hiking to the top of Diablo Peak near Tubac, Arizona, to rescue a Mexican man who was unable to walk any further. Agents are waiting with the man who will be airlifted out in the next few minutes. More details to come. I mean, really? That's what our Border Patrol exists? I mean, I I get it. I get it. They get bad PR from the left, and they're just seeking to say what good people they are. But am I the only one who thinks that our Border Patrol doesn't exist to help foreign invaders in distress? Look, we are, we're all pro-life, and if there's a guy that we could save and whatever, but it, it, this is becoming a regular occurrence. Again, our assets are not of political or bureaucratic leadership to give away to foreign nationals. They belong to the American people. We pay for a border patrol to protect us. Similarly, the next tweet they have, this is from you know, just an hour ago, Univision's Pedro Ultras, whatever his name is, interviews a family from Guatemala who surrendered to border patrol immediately after illegally crossing near Lukeville. Thanks to Univision and Oscar Gomez News for riding along with border patrol. Why are they putting that out? I mean, they're thanking Univision for interviewing a family like... Like, almost like it's a good thing. Like, welcome to the picnic. I don't know. Will they thank me for reporting on how the illegal immigrants are dangerous? Will they allow me to ride along to provide a different narrative? I, I just, just, I don't know. Maybe I'm being too nitpicky here, but it just rubs me the wrong way. At the end of the day, we're hearing too much about humanitarianism. When, as we noted last week, we're not talking about the humanitarian crisis for Americans. You know, I look, um, I, I went back and looked at a statement January 4th, 2016 of Obama's DHS secretary, Jay Johnson. And it was just, it was just much stronger. 
It began as follows. As I have said repeatedly, our borders are not open to illegal migration. If you come here illegally, we will send you back consistent with our laws and values. In the spring and summer of 2014, we faced a significant spike in families and unaccompanied children from Central America attempting to cross our southern border illegally. In response, we took a number of actions in collaboration with the governments of Mexico, Guatemala, Honduras, and El Salvador, and the numbers declined dramatically. And they go on to list those numbers. And then, you know, they talked about new priorities. And... They basically say, since the summer of 2014, we have removed and repatriated migrants to Central America at an increased rate, averaging about 14 flights a week. Um, and then he promises that they're going to expand it from they were doing mainly adults, but now we're going to do um, family units. The focus of this weekend's operation were adults and, and their children, being those who came in with children. This enforcement action was overseen by Sarah Saldana, the director of ICE, and supported and executed by Thomas Homan, a career law enforcement official who leads ICE's enforcement and removal operations. I was just reminded of this statement by a friend. And again, I mean, the, the Trump administration is requesting $4.6 billion, and you look at most of the money, it's not for, they don't really talk about repatriation, like even Jay Johnson did. It's all about treating the symptom. Almost like these ICE, these uh, CBP tweets. Just really frustrating. Really, really frustrating. So, um, I, I, I don't know what they're doing. And as we said yesterday, there's some good signs. We're going to keep you updated on this. But I want to get back to some of the basics. A lot of people forget why we are here to begin with. We were we are in this position, as we are on many issues, but I think this is the gravest issue we're confronted with, with the most urgent problems at the border, is all because of the legacy of judicial supremacism multiplied by a hundred, by a factor of a million, to forum-shopped lower court supremacy. What this administration has done, now I don't blame them for this blowing up on their watch, but once it did, they had an obligation to draw a line in the sand. And because they didn't do it initially, it allowed, it created almost this expectation. Oh yeah, of course, a law judge is going to go to litigation and a lower judge is going to put an injunction until and unless the Supreme Court takes it off which means then they can come back again and do it again and our policy gets shut down and there's a cascading ill of policy effects for a bunch of years until the Supreme Court slaps it down again. Which is where I came up with the title of today's show that evidently it ain't over until the fat district judge sings. See, for years we were told for years, we were told that there's only one branch of government that matters, and that's the Supreme Court. That the Supreme Court is supreme to the other two branches of government, even though they're unelected, which by design was 
so they'd be the weakest. So no matter what the issue is, it could be a purely political issue, not a judicial issue, not a legal issue, not an individualized rights issue, a, a broad public policy cultural question or policy question. And once the Supreme Court chooses a case and gives standing to it and weighs in based on that case, that's like the law. The law is not the law. The Constitution is not the law. What the other two branches do is not the law. It's what the Supreme Court says, that is gospel. So we were told, and this was the moral hazard of it. The moral hazard was that no matter what happened, meaning you could have had 150 years worth of law standing and the Supreme Court saying one thing, but the minute you get a Supreme Court to say the exact opposite, not just in co- contradicting the other branches of government and the plain meaning of the law and the Constitution, and our, but, but, but even their own rulings, that's the law of the land. Again, what do you think Roe and Obergefell are? They are themselves overturning precedent. Right? A lot of people forget that Obergefell overturns a nine-to-nothing opinion. It was like from 1979 or something. So the left saw how easily conservatives were battered into submission into this post-constitutional system that was concocted, and they said to themselves, wait a minute. Conservatives have gone along so easily with the notion that any judge at any moment could just change something. So they that's when they got the idea. They said, well, what do you think a Supreme Court reversing itself is? That's progression. We're being progressive. So what's to stop a lower court from doing the same thing? Even though the Supreme Court ruled one way, well, catch me if you can. We'll put an injunction on and told unless the Supreme Court stops us. And guess what? If they stop us then, there's a thousand other angles to hit at it in slightly different cases. This is the notion we've been warning about the for really the last two years throughout this administration. And that is why we are where we are with the, with the border. Make no mistake about it. It's all because of lower court rulings that would have never been issued by the Supreme Court initially, would have never been issued by other lower court judges in other jurisdictions. And indeed, they're likely to be overturned by the Supreme Court. And indeed, some of them already have been. And indeed, existing Supreme Court precedent emphatically says the president could keep at anyone he wants, certainly could make regulations governing the criterion for entry. But it doesn't matter. Once we this administration got addicted to following those orders, they lost the moral high ground. And it's gotten so bad that the lower courts are now reversing Trump v. Hawaii. We talked about them reversing Trump v. Hawaii in other cases, meaning reversing some of the jurisprudence, some of the legal rationale behind it, such as, for example, one of the aspects that came out of Trump v. Hawaii was that you can't take a look at the president's intent or racial animus if he has lawful power to do something, he has lawful power to do something. You can't take political statements of why he's doing it. That, 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 that's, not a, that, that, that's a political issue for the, the electorate to decide. That's not a case of the courts. That's what uh, Chief Justice Roberts said very clearly 
in the majority opinion. But we know they've used it in the case of TPS and other immigration cases. They just totally ignore it. Now the courts are on the cusp of overturning Trump v. Hawaii. I'm not kidding. Didn't even stand for a year. Overturning Trump v. Hawaii. Well, Daniel, how could a lower court overturn? I'll tell you, because in the legal profession, the left controls the culture. So there is no stigma. There is no, you're not going to be, you know, you're not going to get a, a contract put out on you, proverbially speaking, in the legal profession if you deviate more progressively from a Supreme Court decision. You could always question it. Well, maybe it wouldn't apply here. Well, maybe this is a little different. Maybe. Prove, prove me I'm wrong. And the clock starts over again. The Supreme Court has to get involved again. And then imagine if you do this on 50 issues, life, marriage, abortion, you know, immigration, election law, you name it. The Supreme Court has a limited number of resources. Remember, there's 94 district, ju- district courts. There's only one Supreme Court. So they could just flood the zone, create a velocity. Supreme Court swats down a few here and there, and they'll come back for more. It's unbelievable, but that is what's happening. And to me, the moral hazard was when this started with the travel ban. The notion that you're going to create a right to immigrate, a religious liberty right to immigrate, it should have been stopped in its tracks. Trump should have said there's no jurisdiction over that. No jurisdiction whatsoever. But you know, they played the game and they put it on hold. And, and that was the problem. They put it on hold. They, they, they agreed that judges have that power. And remember, even the first order, which never, you know, it's, it's not, it, it was never implemented. The one in place today is number three. It's watered down. It doesn't have the complete shutoff of refugees and the complete bar from Syria. But Trump never asserted the clear statutes. I mean, Trump's DOJ. But moreover, remember a Massachusetts judge at the time ruled that, no, he has the power. So it was, it's not even like he didn't have a judge on his side. He did. It was like, no, one judge can't ratify, but another judge could strike down nationwide. Right then is when he should have contested that point. I remember calling it at the time, but instead they went on and on, on like, oh, whatever. And it took a year and a half, finally, the Supreme Court sided with him. And they thought that they were vindicated by their strategy of being patient, going through the game. All right, the Supreme Court slapped it down. But they never categorically went after the notion of standing to rip the cancer out. You know, 8 U.S.C. code 1201HI, H1, I mean, says it clear that a visa, issuance of a visa does not, quote, entitle any alien to be admitted into the United States if upon arrival at the port of entry, he is found to be inadmissible. And then in 1253D, no, I'm sorry, wrong one. Um... 
Where is this here? It's later on that subsection. It actually says that there is no jurisdiction to hear a case of denial of a visa. There is no jurisdiction. It's unlawful for them to hear these cases. Yet they don't assert it. So what happened? Well, I didn't I, I, I hinted to this last week. I didn't get to this. Last Thursday, Judge Chang, this clown, Theodore Chang of Maryland, ruled that a lawsuit could continue. So in other words, he denied the government's motion to dismiss a new lawsuit against the travel ban. Like, well, what do you mean a lawsuit? The Supreme Court upheld it. But no, now they want to say, well, he's not issuing enough waivers or he he doesn't have a good enough process, a clear enough process to get waivers. What do you mean? Didn't Trump via Hawaii say that Trump could bar anyone without waivers? So, I mean, how do you litigate against waivers? Remember, John Roberts said, Trump v. Hawaii, quote, by its terms, 1182F exudes deference to the president in every clause. It entrusts to the president the decisions whether and when to suspend entry, whose entry to suspend, for how long, and on what conditions. It thus vests the president with ample power to impose entry restrictions in addition to those elsewhere enumerated in the INA. Okay. So, how could a judge do this? Now, it wasn't just a motion to dismiss. You read the 47-page garbage. It was almost like siding with the plaintiffs, who are a bunch of refugee resettlement contractors. How they could get standing, I don't know. But if the administration doesn't assert that they don't, this is the problem. And you read it, and you're struck by the fact that you would think that the the plaintiffs had won in Trump v. Hawaii. You would think that Trump lost the way he was talking about it. Remember, Theodore Cheng is one of the judges who got overturned on this very issue, on this very order. There's no humility. It's not even like it's a different guy. It's one of the, he was one of the five, seven judges, whatever, throughout the country that did it. Theodore Chang. No, I mean, no humility whatsoever. It's like you would think he would be on the hook. No, he doesn't feel it because the Supreme Court, first of all, even the conservatives aren't strong enough. They don't rebuke them strongly enough. And the legal profession, they're cheering them on. Like I noted a couple weeks ago when I was talking about that crazy Mississippi judge, that racist who was bashing Trump, a sitting federal judge, he was bashing the travel ban, like as if it's unlawful. I'm like, well, you might disagree with it politically, but the Supreme Court said it's fine. So we were the suckers for all these years, these phony conservatives agreeing to Supreme Court supremacy when they themselves don't abide by it. Because they have a rule, heads we win, tails you lose. If it's the Supreme Court says you lose, then there's nothing more to talk about. But if the Supreme Court says you win, look, there's other angles. So you might be wondering, well, how did he address, I mean, what do you mean? Like he just says the Supreme Court's garbage? 
So here's the beautiful line. He has a line in there that I, I really want to give this over to you because if you understand this, you can understand everything that's going on with the courts and why we will never win the judicial game by, quote, appointing better judges and countenancing their game the minute we agree to the premise that any court and certainly a lower court could just shut down public policy and they're the sole and final expositor of the Constitution as it relates to any broad public policy issue. He said that about Trump v. Hawaii, you know, the Supreme Court opinion, it was only, quote, representing a snapshot in time and does not necessarily preclude a different determination at a later stage of the case on a more fulsome record. Do you understand that based on that, you could, no matter what, you could have the most categorical Supreme Court ruling? And you know, my, my criticism is that you know, most of them aren't ruling like Thomas, and they're being too, you know, mealy mouthed, especially with regards to the standing issue, and they're not categorically ripping it up. But even if they did, at some point, you can't beg the Supreme Court to wipe your rear end. You got to do it yourself. At some point, the, the executive branch needs to push back and say this is illegitimate. Daniel, are you suggesting that the president not listen to the Supreme Court? I'm like, well, actually, the president has the law, the Constitution, case law, and a brand new Supreme Court decision, and it's the lower court not listening to the Supreme Court. So are you telling me that now the president, in addition to violating the Constitution, has to violate Supreme Court precedent as well? in order to listen to a forum shop lower court, which was overturned in this very issue. I mean, that's what I want to know. I want to know if tomorrow, Judge Chang, and there's a parallel case in California too, by the way, they're, they're, they're doing this in a few places, says, uh, we're, we're, we're putting an injunction on the travel ban. We're part of the travel ban. Do you mean to tell me, I mean, would this administration suspend it? I really hope not. But I mean... That would be a litmus test of how far we've gone. Again, this is a superlative opportunity for this administration. Everyone remembers they won a high-profile victory at the Supreme Court. Everyone remembers that. Because I'm just telling you, you can. they'll always, these guys are really smart lawyers. They're always going to come back and say, this case is different. Even though it's the exact same issue. It ain't over until the fat lower court judge sings. And that could be never or at any time. It could be 100 years later. They could say, we're not doing this. It could be tomorrow. That's the brilliance of the game they, they concocted. Remember, Clarence Thomas warned. In June 2017, before, like a year earlier, the Supreme Court dealt before they dealt with the merits they dealt with the preliminary injunction remember they declined to take off the injunction fully they unanimously did it temporarily um unanimously did it for a lot of it but then they said except for those who have substantial ties to america and thomas gorsuch and alito wrote a partial dissent they were like well no what do you mean i mean this is all garbage. And and Thomas was the one who wrote it. And he warned, he said, they're just going to go back to these very same district judges. And they're going to do their thing. The very, he said, 
more legal issues are likely to arise will presumably be directed to the two district courts whose initial orders in these cases this court has now unanimously found sufficiently questionable to be stayed as the vast majority of the people potentially affected. I mean, could, could you imagine like you have, um, I don't know, uh, a, a I mean, no, no one's doing this because we all have submitted to the homosexual agenda. But let's say the Alabama state government says we're not issuing marriage licenses to same-sex couples. So they take them to court, and let's say they somehow get a conservative federal judge. And they, that judge is like, look, you know, I understand you got Obergefell, but that was a snapshot at the time. This is, this is a little different case. It's, uh, you know, more a wholesome... Uh, fulsome record. We we gotta gotta see what plays out here. I mean, could, could you imagine that the guy would be terrified to do that? See, what I love, what what is so pathetic is that Democrats or and the left they want the supreme they want the Supreme Court to be a legislature, but only when it rules in their direction. When it doesn't, they get it right. No, it's just an opinion in that one case. Ironically, it's our side that we're, that are a bunch of fools. They're like, yeah, the court spoke already. There's nothing we can do. Like our side never does that and pushes back in a slightly different case. Marriage, gone. Photo ID, gone. Life, gone. 50 million babies dead, gone. The other side, they're like, hey, hold my beer. That Supreme Court decision means nothing. I just wanted to have this discussion because I think this is what so many are missing. It's kind of like when you're trying to scratch an itch on your back and you just can't like get the essence of it, Ugh, like get, get exactly where it is. To me, this case just really brought out the point I've been banging home for several years of how they've already evolved into a new game with this lower court business. You can never win that. You can never, ever win that. I mean, you look, just to, to give you another example of lower court disobedience, not just against the law and the Constitution, but even the own, you know, Supreme Court of its own branch. Think about the redistricting cases. Some of you might have seen this. That the Supreme Court, you know, the the um, lower courts, what was this? The I guess it was the Sixth Circuit. Or no, the Seventh Circuit. And the district judge before that ruled that Wisconsin's maps are unconstitutional. The Supreme Court categorically reversed it. And no, I mean, basic political gerrymandering, and that wasn't even much gerrymandering in that case. They, they, they're like, we're not going to, it's not, not really the role of us to get involved in, in, in these type of cases. And then now there's another case, which is considered the du jour case. This is the ultimate case. They combine North Carolina with Maryland, the ultimate case. And it's very likely 
We'll see, but it's very likely that five justices, at least five, will say, look, you know, this is a political issue. We're not getting involved. You already had oral arguments, and an opinion will likely be rendered within five, six weeks. Okay? I mean, everyone in the legal profession knows that. That this is like the Roe v. Wade of, you know, redistricting. Okay, this is it, it. They already heard oral arguments. The Supreme Court, I mean, they're God, right? I mean, everyone's got to listen. I mean, no matter what they say, they could say slavery is the law. And, you know, Congress, the executive branch, all 50 states, they must bow to that and treat that as a political rule for all policy. So you would think, certainly, the inferior courts to that superior court within that branch of government would be like, hey, like, okay, this is the the big daddy's got it. I mean, you know, let's let's deal with our other cases. No. Last couple of weeks, separate federal judges in Ohio and Michigan, after 10 years of people being elected based on these maps, suddenly said that the Republican maps in both those states, they're unconstitutional. You'd be like, well, what, what do you mean? I mean, the Supreme Court's teetering on this. Just wait six weeks. So Mark Joseph Stern, who's the legal writer for Slate.com, has an amazing article. Now, he talks about this approvingly. We would be appalled by it, but it's actually a very accurate description of what's going on to prove our point. The title is beautiful. The title of his, art, of his article, Lower Courts Are Lobbying SCOTUS to Reign in Partisan Gerrymandering. <laughs> I love it. I love it. I mean, that's it's just because it, it's so true. I mean, and he's happy about it. So this guy, uh, Derek Mueller, um, Derek T. Mueller, he uh, he sent this article to me. I didn't see it on my own. And uh, Derek's an associate professor of law at Pepperdine University. And, you know, we've become close on these issues and, you know, he's, he's a good guy. So he sent this to me. I was like, hey, uh, I guess we now have, do we have to register lower court judges as lobbyists now? <laughs> but it's so true. That's what's happening. So the guy's like, in June, the U.S. Supreme Court will finally decide whether the federal judiciary can rein in partisan gerrymanders. But the lower courts aren't waiting for the justice's approval. In the past two weeks, two federal district courts have struck down gerrymanders in Ohio and Michigan, ruling the legislators' political redistricting violated the Constitution. And then he goes on to say, while SCOTUS dilly-dallies, the lower courts are taking action, aggressively overturning gerrymanders across the country. You know, th- th- this, is, this is exactly the point. Not only does allowing random forum shopping lower court judges to issue a political, politically binding edict at any time even after the Supreme Court said to the contrary and told them unless they overturn it again in this game of cat and mouse, not only does that create irrevocable harm to our system, where you have, for example, on immigration, criminal aliens being released for four or five years when you know they're going to get reversed. Often they've already been reversed in similar cases. Doesn't matter. But also for the future, it creates what I always refer to as a jurisprudential or political velocity. They know that Roberts and really most of them, except for Thomas, are very weak need. And the political culture 
creates a momentum to scare them off. And that's what the courts are trying to do. That People forget Obergefell didn't come in a vacuum where suddenly the Supreme Court overturned the building block of humanity, of all civilization, marriage. It was preceded by two years of relentless lower court assault on it. Until by then, the Supreme Court felt, okay, it wasn't, you know, it's already been decided. That's what's so dangerous about that. But again, it's a one-way ratchet because conservatives can never get away with it and will never do it anyway to the other way on lower courts. They're not going to flood the zone to basically overturn Roe. They're not going to do that. But these guys openly, thats their, they, they know exactly what they're doing. This guy at Slate got it right. They're openly lobbying and saying, I don't like your precedent. I don't like where you you're, it looks like you're headed. I don't like what you did in the Wisconsin case. We expect different. So whichever any one of the 700 or so lower court judges, as long as it's the most progressive at any given time, is the final say on an issue. You tell me why anything in politics matters until we nullify this erroneous premise and restore our republic. I mean, this is a worse form of judicial North Korea than I could have imagined when I set out to write my book, Stolen Sovereignty. If they know that our side will literally suspend consequential public policy that could result in the flooding of our country with millions of illegals and cartels taking over New Mexico with the drugs and the human trafficking and the crime. Who God knows what terrorism sort of stuff coming in. Based on a random forum shopped lower court judge that's in conflict with other judges and with standing Supreme Court precedent, and with the plain meaning of law in the Constitution and the ancient principles of sovereignty, that there is no bridge too far, guess what? They're going to keep doing it. This is why I keep saying the most important thing. If there's one thing I wish Trump could do, one thing. You know, if I had like a genie in a bottle, and he gives me one wish that I could fulfill regarding a Trump a Trump taking action on one issue, it would be this point. To finally push back against one of these judges. You know? That's the story here. I love it how this guy puts it, this guy, Mark Stern. In other words, these courts have called SCOTUS's bluff. They've shown the justices exactly why partisan gerrymandering infringes on the, on the Constitution. If the Supreme Court disagrees, it'll, it'll have to overrule these rigorous assessments of the data. <laughs> Again, but, but he, he is right. That is exactly what they're doing. Perhaps the majority of the Supreme Court is willing to do just that, but the lower courts clearly want to make it as difficult as possible for the justices to reverse their decisions. They appear to be lobbying. Scott is explaining why it must reign in extreme partisan gerrymandering. So, to me, I think that is the best depiction of what is going on there. Everyone's like, Trump appointed 100 judges. Beautiful. 
not a single one of them does this. They just don't. Nor should they. But that's the reality of why I always say, I think this is you know a half an hour version of my bumper sticker line. The capacity of a good judge to do good is nowhere near the capacity of a bad judge to do bad. All right, admittedly, that that's that that in itself doesn't fit on a, on a bumper sticker either, but it's close to it. But you get my point now. Name me any issue you care about, and I will tell you it all gets back to this. Think about it. Think about it very deeply. Something you want to do and believe that need, needs to be done. A lot of it is current law, current constitution, and I will tell you that we cannot do anything so long as we agree that any district judge at any time could come and has this phantom veto power. And that even if after waiting a year or two or three or four or five, the Supreme Court categorically overturns it, that same judge, much less a different one, could come back for another round. You can't have a republic like that. That is the moral hazard of judicial supremacy. You, you, you know what? The latter wave of judicial supremacy versus the former wave kind of reminds me of the latter uh, wave of feminism versus the original wave. So it was all about women. Women, you know, empowering women to be like men. Women are this. Women and women are everything. Women this. But then the next wave had transgenderism where... Well, men are women too. So it's not just that it's immoral and absurd. It's that you're now undermining your, you're contradicting your original, um, you know, your original dissidentum, right? You wanted women to, to rule supreme. Well, now you say a man could be a woman too. Certainly you're seeing that in all these sports records and um, competitions, things like that. It's the same thing here. Supreme Court's God. Now it's, well, it's any lower court's God, even to reverse the Supreme Court. All Trump needs to say is very simple. He needs to say, if the Supreme Court is not even supreme to its own inferior courts, it sure as heck is not supreme to the other two branches of government. It's time for us to do what we know the Constitution and the law says. Call out the five, six reasons why the courts are unlawful. And done. You do this one time, this entire game falls flat. And what Trump needs to realize is he has no choice but to engage. He has no choice but to do this. They're coming for him personally. I mean, remember... A couple weeks ago, this was um, uh, really, no, last week. Judge Emmett Sullivan in the D.C. District. This, if you remember, is the same judge that declared asylum applies to everyone. The same judge that went after um, General Flynn. He denied a similar thing. The government's motion to dismiss the lawsuit on the emoluments clause. Okay? So if you remember, 
this started out as a joke. Like, come on, there's no way they're doing that. Um, but they are, right? The Constitution says that a president can't accept an emolument from a king, a prince, a foreign state without the consent of Congress. Now, anyone with a brain who's not Amelia Bedelia understands what that means is literally a gift. It doesn't mean if you own an international business that somehow you're going to find ways that, oh, this guy stood at your hotel. You could cast aspersions on it politically, but the notion that legally that's an emolument and the president would literally have to either not just you know step back from management but divest from his business – or ask Congress every time and somehow find any time someone could benefit from his business who's a member of a foreign state, there's no way you could function like that. Moreover, anyone with a brain understands that these are one of the clauses of the Constitution, like the Establishment Clause with religion, that even if you believe a president or some body of government is violating that, a court doesn't determine whether you violated, and a court can't order. I mean, they, they're literally trying to say that the court could give standing to Democrat members of Congress so the court could tell the president, you must get permission from Congress. First of all, think about how circular that is. If Democrats want to beat the president up, they could have a budget fight and say, we are not going to pass a budget this year and give you funding for the White House until you do what we want. I mean... Do it like a man. That's Congress has that power. Instead, they outsource it to the courts. Hey, courts, can you? Be, I, how do you get standing for that? The courts don't rule on that. They're individualized injury in fact. No one's injured by it. In a tangible way that, that creates an Article 3 standing. Courts don't rule on that. I mean, we, we need... This is not some nerdy question. This is a fundamental question to our republic. If we're going to have judges like this, and, and, and the judge was very clear that no, they have enough injury or whatever, it's not a problem. So it was pretty clear from this. Again, it wasn't an opinion on the merits. It was, it was um, dismissing the government's motion to dismiss the case. But he really tipped his hand here. So I'd like to know, is that the law of the land? I mean, is the administration going to then, until and unless he gets the Supreme Court to weigh in, start submitting stuff to Congress? You see what I mean? I mean, there's no end to this. It's one more case. There's a lot really going on. I don't want to bore you with all the, you know, there's a lot of stuff that's hard to explain, but I think this one you'll all appreciate. So among the things that Trump has tried to do on abortion, he re- reinstated part of Reagan's Reagan era regulation that look if you're receiving Title Ten funding for you know women's health and things like that, you cannot refer people to for abortions. Now under this regulation, you could still counsel women on abortions. Something that the Reagan reg didn't allow them to do, but you cannot, uh, you, you you cannot actually refer them to an abortion clinic. Okay, so 
This is another great example. There's nothing new about this. Like I said, Reagan did it in the 80s. And there's a case called Rust, Rust v. Sullivan, okay, where the court actually said that the Reagan rule, meaning prohibiting counseling, um, is, is plainly allowed by statute. Right? In other words, um, because title, if you read the statute, it says, none of the funds appropriated under this subchapter shall be used in programs where abortion is a method of family planning. I mean, it's very simple. You cannot use the funds appropriated for programs where abortion is a method of family planning. So if statute is telling you that it is certainly very reasonable for the executive branch to write a regulation and say you can't downright refer to abortions through that program. If, you know, that, that's the essence of the whole Title 10. Okay, that, that was a Supreme Court ruling. And, um, you know, it was, I believe the opinion was written by uh, Rehnquist. And there you go. It was, I must have been, I think it was a five to four decision. And you would think that would be the end of it. But two separate judges, Oregon and one in Eastern Washington, put put a nationwide injunction on it. Not that they have the power to do that. And it's like, Nothing matters. So I came across a column from David French on this, and and he's one of these legal eagles on on the right that is a big judicial supremacist. He doesn't want to hear anything about pushing back against the courts. But then, you know, when you have these radical opinions, he, he does every once in a while write columns like I do, like, oh, you know, writing how egregious it is. But then he stops short of the punchline. So what do you want to do? Meaning the moral hazard is if once you agree to the premise that a court could do anything they want and you, you're bound by that, you lost. Well, I disagree. They shouldn't have rendered that opinion. Okay, but what are you going to do about it? So he ends off his column. There has been a great deal of hand-wringing about America's allegedly undemocratic institutions. The Senate is under fire now, so is the Electoral College, but I see absolutely no hand-wringing from these same individuals when unelected district judges defy statutes drafted by a democratically elected Congress or regulations crafted by a democratically elected president. Okay, so, so far, so good. His final paragraph, the Constitution trumps Congress and the president, of course, but the hallmark of decisions such as Judge Bastian's this is the Washington judge, is not respect for the Constitution, but rather contempt for the administration. So first of all, notice how he says the Constitution trumps Congress and the president. It, the way he's writing it, and he's right, but the way he's writing it, it sounds like he means the courts. The courts are the Constitution. The Constitution expressed to the courts. He's like, look, look, I really, I mean, look, the courts really are right, but I mean, this is really, 
based on the belief that Trump is a threat to America, decisions like this threaten our constitutional order, and they set negative precedents and establish negative practices that will doubtlessly persist well beyond the end of the present administration. Both sides at different times will come to regret the toxic legacy of judicial resistance. But, like, so, so what do you want to do, David? Tacitly, what he seems to be saying is, like, this is horrible. This is a travesty. So I'd like to know, David, what is the law? Right now, what is the law? Can the executive branch dole out funding to those that are referring for, for abortions? Must the executive branch do that? Obviously, under our system, it's very simple. Issuing these funds, dispersing these funds, is a policy of the executive branch. That is their prerogative. Statute says that they're not supposed to be going towards abortion. So they're well within their rights. In addition, they actually have a Supreme Court ruling saying just that. A district judge comes along and says, no, you can't do that. They, they should have the right to referrals. But they don't have a right to taxpayer funding while doing that. That's not a judicial power. A judicial power, like I always say, is get off my lawn. Don't throw me in jail. Don't. But here, you're the ones demanding. I mean, you could do whatever you want. You're just not going to get federal funds. A judge can't award you federal funds. That's not a power they have. They could render an opinion that maybe you should be entitled to it. But that's not within their purview. Ultimately, it's the executive branch's purview. So then it's the incumbent upon the executive branch to look at the law. And the law and the Supreme Court say what they should say. I am crystal clear about that. I'd like to know what other conservatives think about it because I'm not too impressed with what many of them have said. Anyway, in the remaining time here, I just want to clean up some stuff from yesterday, some just odd ends, loose, loose ends on immigration, which again, we're only in this position simply because of this issue that we won't even stand up to universal injunctions of lower court forum shopping. A um, couple things. So you notice how they're already going after Mark Morgan, who is picked as ICE director, which, again, demonstrates they, the media knows exactly where he stands. That's a good thing. They're also going after the administration's new Social Security no-match letters. So we told you guys yesterday that they announced the continuation of a policy that they should have always been doing, but they, they started it a while back to, to send no-match letters to employers when someone files with them a W-2 with a social security number that's stolen. I mean, this is something, the government monitors and tracks us for everything. Why can't they do this? What's always bothered me is, if you and I do something wrong, there's no problem like, yeah, this is the states, tell the feds to keep out. I mean, think about you know, if, if, we, if we do anything wrong, they'll catch up with us. The law will catch up to us. I always say, you know, I, I once got a speeding ticket in South Carolina. And to be honest, I, I was kind of slow. You know, I didn't pay it right away. 
I wanted to see what would happen. And believe me, I got a, a letter from Maryland that, hey, we're going to suspend your license if you don't pay this. Like, we're going to do that. And then I paid it. But the point is, it wasn't like, hey, that's South Carolina. There's no, like, interstate issue. So certainly the federal government, when they come after you, I mean, this is this whole ICE detainer thing is just insane. That somehow states could push back against that. But anyway, with the Social Security records... I wanted to I wanted you guys to know that the Bush administration started this. Um but then it was actually blocked by a federal judge in California in 2007 and it was rescinded. So I fully expect to see a lawsuit on that the left-wing open border groups are going nuts over it because they know if you shut down identity theft, you shut this all down. But again, how come nobody cares about American victims of identity theft? It's one of the worst crimes. All of these DACA recipients committed it, and the government has covered that up. So this is a good start. But again, just remember... I don't. I don't remember exactly what aspect of the problem was with the that 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 of the issue that the judge went after, but just know that for twelve years we haven't had this in place. We've had the stealing of American social security numbers because of a California judge. It all gets back to the judges. Whoever sets the scoreboard and controls the score wins the game. We're told that any left-wing judge could control the scoreboard, irrespective of what other judges have said before him. The other thing that just is troubling me a little bit is that, according to an article from Bloomberg, and I have to research this a little bit more, it appears that they're not going to give our Social Security Administration when they get these no matches, they're not going to hand over the information to ICE. They're forever citing privacy issues. I have to find out about that because that, that, that that's nonsense. There's no privacy. If you're a no match, you're giving over to ICE, period. Now, if the guy who happened to do that is not in America, it, it is an American because not every no match is from an illegal the vast majority are, but you know, there's other people that engage in identity theft. For you know, it could be um, a guy on the sex registry list. Sometimes they want to get a job. There's some of that going on. So ICE will look it up and they'll see right away if he's an American or not. They have that information. So if he's a if he's an illegal, ICE is entitled to know about that. So whatever that, that that's what that issue. Finally, I just wanted to close the loop. I guess this will be our final point. I have so many things in my stack here, but we'll have to save it for later this week. This is really sad. Last week, we reported that the previous weekend, two Californians in separate incidents, different parts of the state, were killed by illegal alien drunk drivers and that nobody reported on it. Nobody reported that they're illegal. And, and we asked the question, how often does this happen? Does this happen every day? And we don't even know about it. 
So guess what? Yesterday afternoon, I saw that over this weekend, the same thing happened. Except a little different rub. Three family members were wiped out after what appears to be an illegal, and I'm double-checking that, slammed into their trailer home. The guy was drunk, slammed into the um, mobile home, and killed three people late Saturday night when the family was sleeping. Ismael Huazo Gardinez, 33, of Yuba City, was speeding and drinking drunk when he crashed into the trailer. He tried to flee, but he was beaten down by some people around him. And they, he held down, which is good. Faces felony DUI charges and vehicular manslaughter. I don't see a word. I googled ICE detainer hold on, on the name and nothing came up. So we got a request into ICE on that. Surprisingly, I haven't heard back yet. I'll have to call up. Um, but th- this is just out of control. It's terrible what's going on in Israel. And if we have time, I might bring on Colonel Steiner tomorrow to talk about what's going on there, what's important to America, how Iran ties in. But as terrible as it is, only four, I should say only, but four people have been killed there. Here, three Americans were wiped out by an illegal. That's not domestic crime. That's the same thing we're experiencing here. It's just more subtle. That's the problem. You don't see the cartels shooting rockets, but the cartels and gang members, they're bringing in all their garbage and killing Americans one by one, sometimes a few at a time, and we don't even know about it. Well, it's my goal here to make sure we all know about it because truth and knowledge is power, and that's the only thing we could put forth to fight the power of the elites. Thank you so much for listening. God bless y'all. This has been another episode of The Conservative Conscience.